Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On this, the first episode of Manager Meetings, Alex Shahidi speaks with Jeremy Grantham. Alex is a past guest on Capital Allocators and is the co-CIO of Evoke Wealth and Eris Consulting, a $19 billion registered investment advisor he co-founded in 2014. 
Jeremy is the famed leader of money manager GMO, where he oversees $60 billion in assets. Their conversation occurred during the depths of the underperformance of value stocks and discusses a market bubble unlike any other in history, some thoughts on climate change, value investing, and where to invest today. To kick it off, Alex and I discuss his thoughts on GMO and the fit inside his client portfolios. I hope you enjoy Alex's conversation with the great Jeremy Grantham in the first episode of Manager Meetings. Alex, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. So this is going to be really interesting. A conversation with Jeremy Grantham, and probably many people have heard him and have a sense of what he might talk about. Why don't we, just for background, chat a little bit about how you first got involved knowing Jeremy and investing with GMO? I've known Jeremy probably for 20 years or so, been following him for a long time. I've had the great opportunity to meet him many, many times and hear his perspective. And what's interesting when you talk to somebody over that long of a time period, you really get to build a track record of what they said, what actually happened, were they right more often than wrong. And my sense is he's been relatively bearish for a long period of time, but he seems to have a pretty good nose for these things. And he's been, I'd say, overall more on the right side than on the wrong side. As we know, he's sort of on the value camp, bearish on pretty much the entire world right now. How do you think about incorporating that view more broadly into your portfolio beyond just whatever you're doing with GMO? Well, our goal is always to focus on diversification across low correlated return streams. And part of that is also looking at managers who can generate alpha over time, which is a unique return stream in its own. And I think their strategies fit well within that construct. They have a value bias, but they also have a a more holistic perspective where the strategies that we're focused on, they can invest in just about any asset class. So they can avoid the areas that are expensive. They can really emphasize the areas that are cheap and they're unconstrained, which gives them that opportunity to focus on those areas that they think are going to outperform over time. That fits in really well with other strategies that do something totally different from that. How do you think about where you place your chips in a firm like GMO that has a broad portfolio and even within the unconstrained portion of it, there's a bunch of different products that you could invest in? I think of them more as an asset allocator. I think that's one area that they're really good at. They're less focused on the timing of when things will underperform and outperform and more on picking the right asset classes to own over longer periods of time. So that forces you, if you buy into that concept, to give them a little bit more time to deliver rather than looking at them quarter to quarter, even year by year. We do use the global tactical asset allocation strategy. I view it as a good way to get exposure to whatever they think is best within their universe of options. And then we also look at the uh, resources strategy, which we think is a good place to be just in general looking forward. This has been a very difficult period for value. How do you make sure you stand firm and get to the other side when year after year after year for a while now, the strategies have been underperforming. Yeah. I mean, that's part of having a diversified portfolio. By definition, you should own things that are not doing well, because if they're all doing well at the same time, you're probably going to go through a period where they're all doing poorly at the same time. So part of it is buying into that conceptual framework of if you're going to own things that are going to underperform for stretches. Obviously, you don't know when that's going to happen or when it's going to reverse. So that's number one. And then number two is really understanding what you own, what its role is in the portfolio, so that when that asset goes through its inevitable period of underperformance, rather than selling it at its lows, 
you're more apt to buy it at its lows. And that can accrue to better returns longer term. Now, one thing Jeremy will always talk about is climate risk. And he does a little bit in your conversation. How are you thinking about climate risk in your portfolios? It's a very interesting question because if you zoom out a little bit, and Jeremy's great at zooming out, probably among the best that I've talked to. If you do that, you realize that there are certain factors that might be much bigger than market pricing and momentum and all those things. And climate change could easily be one of those things and the risks associated with that. So I think we're starting to see asset allocators factor that in to their strategies. It's not just something to do because you feel good about it, but it's something that might actually impact the bottom line of companies and asset classes. So it's becoming a bigger and bigger factor in our analysis. All right, Alex, let's have at it. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure, really. Thank you. Let's begin with the single biggest question that we all face. Essentially, nothing else matters unless we can solve this one. You've studied, talked about, and written extensively about climate change. I know it's a passion of yours, something you've been working on for a long time. Please share with us your thoughts on this critical topic. Are humans doomed or do we stand a fighting chance? Okay, you're grown-ups, so you can stand more than the average dose of reality, I suppose. And the truth is, we are not going to contain the climate warming at one and a half degrees or two degrees, that we are struggling to determine where in the zone over three degrees centigrade will end up. My guess is between three and three and a half degrees centigrade. That will cause an enormous amount of trouble for global societies. Some countries in Africa will be completely destabilized by the situation. The Indian subcontinent will have major troubles due to the increase in heat and humidity. Uh, big chunks of the subcontinent will simply be impractical uh, to live in that uh, outdoor farming for more than three hours on one of the worst days and you drop dead. Uh, that, that zone of basically uninhabitable land has only been one and a half percent 20 years ago. And it's only a little more than that today, but in 50 years, the scientists calculate it will be 17%, which doesn't sound too bad. And indeed, most of it is in the Sahara the Amazon deserts in China and, and the Saudi Peninsula. But regrettably, it also includes the entire Indian subcontinent, with the majority of which will be in the zone of really extreme difficulty. And there's 2 billion of them, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, by uh, 2170. And Africa, which will be the other the zone that feels the great stress, will be about 3 billion or more. So that's 5 billion out of perhaps a total of nine, more than half the world, right in line of fire. So I think it will be stress on those areas and immigration and the pressure on Europe of millions of Africans attempting to migrate will be the main political risk that we face and a real threat to the well-being of society. So in short, we're going to face many problems. What we're fighting for is to avoid existential threats. We're fighting to keep most of the countries stable and to maintain at least a limited amount of economic progress. Okay. And is there, is there anything we can do between now and then to change the course of history? Yes. On, on paper, Homo sapiens is completely capable of handling this easily. The trouble is that in real life, we don't behave very well. That's what we have to deal with. 
those people who get the point have to use everything within their power to influence others. We have to propagandize our colleagues. We have to use our influence with the corporations we're associated with. We have to vote intelligently towards those people who get greenification of the planet that is required. You can never do too much. We are protecting the reasonable security of our grandchildren. This is not about philanthropy. This is about sensible, defensive spending. Well, hopefully we turn in that direction before it's too late. So thank you for sharing those thoughts. Let's move on to something that's a little bit more present today. You have a remarkable record of calling major market inflection points. In 1987, Japan was at its high. It was maybe half the market. You owned zero. In the late 90s, we had the tech bubble. You called that. 2007, the housing bubble, you called that. I remember a memo you wrote in 2009. I think it actually came out the day of the low of the market, and the title was Reinvest When Terrified. So you've been on the other side as well. So a great history of calling these major inflection points. What would you say is the next one? And do you feel like we're in a bubble today, kind of like what we saw in the late 90s with the tech bubble? I do think we're in a bubble, but I also think it's unlike any other bubble. The great bubbles of history, whether it's the South Sea bubble or 1929 or the tech bubble, you take a very good economic situation and you merely extrapolate it into the future. And if you do that and it actually occurred, the market would be worth very high multiples of book and earnings and so on. It's a very simple game. Believe in today's perfect conditions and assume unrealistically, as it turns out, that it will go on forever. If you did that today and you extrapolated today's conditions, which are miserable, you would, of course, have the very opposite of a bubble. So that makes it unique. We're in the highest 5% of PEs and we're in the lowest 5% of economic conditions today. So there's never been anything like that in history. And why has it happened? We know the trouble is, of course, COVID. And we know the push on stock prices is a combination of central banks the Federal Reserve, and fiscal spending. And it's global. So we have never had such a global agreement that every government is looking to spend and every government is looking for their central bank to accommodate. This is an enormous push. And what we discovered long ago is how effective that is at moving stock prices. It's as if every dollar that is not absorbed by the real world flows through line of least resistance, flows through into assets pricing. That is what is happening. It's a very impressive struggle between the real world of productivity and employment and GDP and the paper world of PE ratios and house prices pushed by easy credit, low interest rates, of course, being key, and just plentiful supplies of money uh, flapping around uh, to those people who are likely to buy houses and stocks. It is not necessarily the case at the small business level at all. So this is not necessarily a terrific for the real broad economy, but it is clearly terrific for the stock market. And the question is, does the real world eventually catch up? And since this is novel uh, economy, just like the novel virus, you can't be quite as certain as you could in prior bubbles. I described our confidence in prior bubbles as near certain. I wrote a paper called Three Near Certainties for Uncertain Times. That was my title anyway for Fortune in 08. All of those things, of course, occurred. 
And you can't be that certain this time because the forces are unique. That's going to make life more intellectually interesting. However, my bet would be, of course, that reality will catch up with the high PEs. And expanding on that, part of what's happened is you have these weak economic conditions, no sign of inflation. And so it's a relatively easy playbook for central bankers across the world to cut interest rates, many of them are at zero or even below, and print money and keep providing stimulus to prop up the economies. And that could last for a while because inflation hasn't reared its ugly head yet. So how does that factor into how you invest in an environment like this, where there's a disconnect between economic conditions and markets, as, as you described, but the cause of that, mostly central bank and fiscal policy, can continue for a long time. How do investors deal with this? It's important to separate monetary from fiscal spending and FDR-type broad-based planning of that kind. I'm a great believer in that. I'm much more suspicious of credit and interest rates. Let me just point out that uh, we entered an era with Greenspan of a fairly decent kink in the cumulative debt curve. It had been drifting up very slowly, and then it started to rise very rapidly since his era. What you notice is that despite the fact that the debt ratio per unit of GDP has doubled and tripled and will soon quadruple since the first day of Greenspan, the growth rate of the US and the developed world has slowed. So if there was some easy relationship between debt and growth, it should have showed up. And in fact, the reverse has occurred. And that's one of the reasons I'm suspicious. As to the point when the market gets jumpy, very hard to read. If you go back to the earlier bubbles and you look at 1929, there was no great event. People have studied that now for 90 years. And we still haven't found the reason. The best we can come up with is, quote, selling came in from the country, unquote, which means it wasn't New York and Boston and the financial centers. It was the industrial centers of the Midwest. And they were the people who were seeing that the economy was weakening. And they looked at the high prices and the optimism that was everywhere and decided they would, would take some profits. And that was what turned the tide. And then more people decided they would take profits and it spiraled out of control. It was not done by a massive change in the Federal Reserve policy or any government spending program. So that's what you have to be wary about. That in the end, uh, high PEs are an intrinsically nervous and risky situation where everything is confidence. If you break confidence for any reason, it could be uniquely different this time. It, it has been quite different in each of the bubbles. But if you break confidence and you're way overpriced, uh, you're looking at some very substantial declines. I think one of the things that's interesting is when you look at valuation, and you look across the board, it seems like most asset classes are relatively expensive. And part of that is due to rates being at zero. And part of the central bank approach is to make cash as unattractive as possible and tell you they're going to keep it at zero for a long period of time to encourage you to spend the money, to invest it in, in something as a way to stimulate the economy that could last for some time. You could have expensive markets becoming more expensive because you have this push that we haven't seen in a long time. I'm just curious how yeah, you no, factor that in. That is a possibility. But you can't get blood out of a stone. If you take a forest in New England, and I'm a great fan of forestry, and you back up 10 years, 12 years, you could get 6% return. And then you 
push up the asset prices across the board and you come back 12 years later today and the same forest will give you a 3% return. The same with the Midwestern farm. It's gone from 6% to 3%. Now, that's been a wonderful ride in capital gains, but the price you pay is you don't make 6% a year compounded, which is very handy, you make three. And yes, if it goes up even higher, you'll make another capital gain, but the cost of that will be that the yield on the forest will go to two. You get my point. So the price of staying high multiples is you get a low dividend, uh, whether it's a farm or whether it's stocks. And that's what you see. So in the interim, you have this trade-off between lower yields on one side and capital gains on the other until it peaks out. And then you're left with lower yields and declining prices in the way we've experienced cycle after cycle since time immemorial. You can either earn the returns now and suffer in the future, or you can postpone them until later. But over time, it's going to average out. When you buy overpriced assets, you get a guarantee of a low return. What you don't get is the guarantee of being wiped out next week. But since you bring that topic up, my belief is that if you're trying to time the breaking of a bubble, the value is not that important. All of them are overpriced. And whether they're overpriced at 25 times earnings or 35 times earnings, or in Japan at 65 times earnings, it's very difficult to work out in any sort of academic way since you're dealing with craziness uh, where it's going to peak. I much prefer to look for signs of truly crazy behavior because every bubble that really crashed and broke in a spectacular way, which most of them did, was preceded by craziness, by legendary stories. This was notably lacking, as I wrote and talked about over the years of the 10-year bull market. It has not been lacking, really. I think you could agree in, the, in this rally off the COVID low. We have seen not only a terrific rate of acceleration in the price rise, double the normal bull market, which is characteristic. That acceleration is characteristic of late stage bubble. But we've also seen wonderful craziness. The SPACs, which are a promise to use your money, give me your money and trust me, I'll do something useful with it, is, is a real echo of the South Sea bubble where we have such a spectacular opportunity, we can't reveal what the purpose of your money is yet. And they got lots of money and ran off with it. I'm not saying the SPACs will run off with your money, but I am saying it's a, a real testimonial to the speculative nature. Buying Hertz, a bankrupt company, and, and having it go up four, five, six times in a real hurry, and so on and so on. You, you read about your own. Uh, having a Tesla quadruple this year. I own a Tesla. It's a wonderful car. I, I think they're a spectacularly interesting company. Uh, but are they four times the company they were before COVID? Hmm, I don't think so. These stories are everywhere and they're what you need before a bubble breaks. And we saw them in early 2000 and late 99. And we saw them in late 1929 before the crash. We saw them in Japan and here we are again. So I think this is an indicator, not a certainty, but a strong possibility that we are quite close to the bubble breaking in terms of psychology. Perhaps a matter of weeks or months, not years. Yeah, it is interesting because a lot of the market behavior, in some ways you could argue, is rational when you're earning zero in cash, actually negative real yields, and bonds give you hardly anything. 
and you need to earn a return that you're going to move into assets and it's going to push the price up. So some of that you could rationalize, not being crazy behavior, but being something that someone who's seeking returns would rationally do. And then you have the stories that you just described. And it does seem like the trend is moving towards more extreme outcomes. And so it'll be very interesting to see how that nets out. And I am sympathetic to the argument, what am I supposed to do? The yields are so low, but the market doesn't care that uh, you don't have easy, safe investments to make. And your desperation is your own matter. Uh, What it does is focus on the difference between short-term and long-term. On the short-term, you can say, I'm offered nothing by fixed income. I get something out of stocks, even though it's half what it seemed to be in the yield. It's still better than nothing. Therefore, I'll do it. And the prices rise. And that is a logic that you hear one way or the other all over the place. And then there's the argument in the long term, which is, in the end, all assets equal replacement cost. House prices go up, but if you can build one at half price, you put a ceiling on it. If you can create a new company at half price, I am a great fan of venture capital uh, for this reason. 60% of the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment is already in relatively early stage VC. And we are in the business of creating a new values from ground zero. We are not in the business of trading overpriced assets that have been bid up because people are desperate. And that is a huge difference. Another difference, by the way, since I'm on the topic of BC, is that American capitalism in particular has become a little fat and happy, is how I like to describe it. It's too monopolistic. It has too much political influence. It gets the laws of the land changed in its favor, whether they're environmental or tax. And they've simply learned to be less risky. Why start an exciting but risky new enterprise when you can buy your own stock back? And so they do buy their own stock back. And that burden of starting the new enterprises passes down the pipeline to venture capital. And we have never seen more interesting opportunities. Venture capital, not surprisingly, has a higher return than the stock market because of the riskiness of each individual unit. But if you have a diversified portfolio, uh, you have no more risk than the stock market, but you have a higher return. And the green VC part of it, which is springing out of the woodwork, is going to have a very high top line growth rate. Of course, electric cars are going to pound to death the growth rate of gasoline cars. Of course, wind and solar is going to overwhelm gas, electricity, and storage is going to be epic and energy efficiency. We are going to take tens of trillions of dollars to green our economy, and we must do it. And those opportunities, unlike building walls along the Palisades with FDR and creating handsome looking parks, the green investments that we should be making have a high societal return. When you insulate a Northeastern house, you get a nice cash return saving for 30, 40 years. When you improve the electric grid, that would be a great idea. And and China is surging ahead as we speak. You get a handsome return in savings. Instead of losing 15% at 500 miles, you lose 2% and so on and so forth. And we are letting China get a running start on transmission, on wind where they dominate, on electricity where they dominate, and even in electric cars. They have 300,000 electric buses and the US has 400. What are we thinking about? There's a common saying, don't fight the Fed. I guess you you can add to that, don't fight mother nature. That's a tailwind that you can certainly profit from. I've spent my entire life fighting the Fed, frankly. And what I will say is this, that 
typically the Fed wins many more rounds than we do, <laughs> than we have. But in the end, uh, we've had a knockout. The, in, right. in, in the end, the Fed has not been able to keep the tech bubble going indefinitely. It sent it over the 21 times earnings of 1929 and sent it up to 35, but it couldn't go on indefinitely. Even Japan that went to 65, the price they paid when you finally knocked it out was here we are 31 years later, not even faintly close to the high of 1989. If you go into their real estate market, which was an even bigger bubble, I think the biggest bubble, including the Sassy bubble ever, or tulips, they went down for 30 years. And now they're bottoming out, maybe, but they're bottoming out in central city prices at a quarter of where they came from. The land under the Empress Palace in 1989-90 was indeed worth the state of California, to give you some idea. We spent a day or two checking it out. It really was true. And the price you pay for that is you could be 50 years later and still not back to that level again. So don't fight the Fed. Don't fight Mother Nature. And when the two go head to head, and what you just described, gravity usually wins. When you hit too high, you're coming down. It doesn't matter if you're the Yeah, player. I would say don't fight the Fed if you're a short-term player. But if you're a long-term player, you have to be prepared to fight the Fed on occasions. I'd like to give you an example of the difference between short-term and long-term. And that is, I've been a fanatic on, on climate change for 20 years, but it was only in 07 that I first wrote a paper urging people to take it seriously. And what has happened since then? We could never say that the next quarter or the next year was going to be uh, troublesome for oil stocks, which is, if you will, the anti-climate portfolio. But when the smoke cleared, oil as a percentage of the S&P had come down from 25% in 1982 and 16% in 08 to 2.5% yesterday. This is the biggest loss of value in the history of the major groups of the S&P that goes all the way back into the 20s. Uh, it's really been remarkable. And yet you never knew when it was going to happen. No one ever made a case that the next year or two would be such a bloodbath. But you were on the wrong side of history if you owned the oil stocks. Now you can't, it's too late now, the, the last miserable two and a half percent, you can't get rich going short that even on the way down from 25 and 15. What a good, demonstration of the long-term, slow-burning, who knows what the time will be, but you know in 10 or 15 years it will bite. And that's what the rest of climate change looks like today. You don't know how fast it will move. You don't know when the U.S. government will wake up and start being a leader once again, but it will probably all happen, and it will go in bursts, and some of the time it will be much faster than you imagine. But you will come back in 10 or 15 years and you will see that we have made an enormous transition to a green economy. We will win technologically. The problem we're dealing with on climate change is not whether we will win, but whether the world will still be worth having when we win. It's the damage that's accumulating day by day already, as you can see around you with the fires in Australia and California and the number of hurricanes, two at a time for the first time ever. And the, the amount of flooding, which is the single most reliable part, uh, heavy floods everywhere, and the threat that poses to global agriculture, by the way. We have the tools to succeed. It's just a matter of, will we employ them early enough? Thank you. That's a good summary. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle. 
helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. We've talked a little bit about the unique nature of the current economic downturn being virus-driven and the extraordinary policy response of zero rates, printing money, unprecedented deficit spending. How do you see this ending? Is this a happy ending or is it something that is going to mark history? Well, I shouldn't pretend to be unbiased at being green. I'm not into politics, but I am into greenery. And that has dragged me willy-nilly into politics. We will have deficit spending, which will be great. And a lot of it will be green, which will be even better and very high return. If the globe was to embark on a massive green stimulus program, which it should, it's necessary. But if it does it, it will give a shock to the economic system that may kick us out of the rather dreary, slow decline in growth rates of the last 20 years. This has not been our finest age. We have been carried on the broad back of China and India and so on. But the developed world has been slowly but steadily losing its growth rate. And one of the reasons is that after the financial crash, we became too jittery about deficit spending, which is I think a big mistake, quite unnecessary. As long as inflation is not really gathering steam, when you find yourself facing a slowing global economy, you have to kick it in the tail. And it needs massive government stimulus on a sustained basis. And what an opportunity to match that with the massive spending we need to green the economy. You end up with uh, no particulate matter which takes years off everybody's lives and kills several million people a year in China from coal and so on and diesel. What an opportunity to have a win-win. Yes, thank you. We've been talking high level. Let's zoom in for a second. You're a famed value investor. That's been your investment style for a long time. We've noticed value has underperformed growth for about a decade. Uh, There's a 35-point spread this year, which is fairly remarkable and noteworthy. Do you view this as a buying opportunity of a lifetime, at least on a relative basis? Or does this spread indicate something is permanently different? Meaning, is, is this time different given the growth of technology and the changes we're going through? How do you view all that? A few years ago, I debated Jim Grant, who called me an apostate amongst value managers for hedging about this time is different. I maintain that the foremost dangerous words this time is different should be replaced by the five most dangerous words, which is this time is never different. That is a very dangerous idea to think that you can never have important permanent changes. 
And I think almost everything has changed since 2000. So the certainties that we used to have no longer exist. But that was five years ago. That was before the most massive move against value. On any way you care to measure it now, we are off the scale. So I don't think a value is as dependable and useful a weapon as it was for 70 years prior to 2000. But I think it's a very handy weapon when you push the parameters so far that it hits historical lows against the growth stocks. So we may not snap back the 120% I would have calculated 20 years ago, but we are going to have a very big reversal in favor of value stocks sooner or later. I think we can be pretty safe about that. And one of the things that comes down to uh, the nature of, of the fangs, the fangs are a, a very interesting subset and well worth anyone studying because they're unique in many ways. There's never been, there's been the occasional company in the past that looked a little fangy, but there's never been a whole clutch of uh, eight or nine in the US and two or three in China that become the biggest companies in the world. They snatch uh, asset value out of thin air. They generate earnings on almost no asset value. They're all about intellectual capital. They are unbelievably disruptive and they move very fast. So these are very special companies and they're worth a lot of money, but they have also been bid up and bid up. And eventually even the best companies can become overpriced. I don't recommend necessarily going short of the fangs, but I do recommend owning as few US equities as you can face. Emerging equities, emerging markets are not only at an unprecedented low relative, but they are actually quite cheap, absolutely, compared to the US and on their own. And who are they? They're China, who uh, is going to represent, according to the World Bank, over 30% of the entire world's growth over the next 20 years, and India, which is going to be an increasingly important player. And then you have the Brazils and the Russias and so on. Uh, collectively, they are much the bigger part now of the global GDP. China, in real terms, is much the biggest economy in the world, very substantially faster than the US and gaining another 10% this year in a single year, give or take. These things move very fast. I think a bet on emerging markets is really betting the future against the past. And uh, the only thing that makes life interesting outside emerging are the fangs. Uh, intellectually interesting, but when they've gone up 10 times in a hurry, you have to say it's intellectually more interesting than it is financially interesting. I think people often forget that markets are a discounting machine. And when you have consensus views in one direction or another, it's very possible that it's either fully discounted in the current price or over discounted, which is probably more often the case. And you do get that sense today where nobody likes value. Everybody loves growth. Even I'm seeing value managers cheat into growth and buying things that are growthy in their value portfolios. And so you're starting to see some of those signs. And I know historically that's been the precursor to a turn. Are you seeing similar evidence of that? Yes, although I have to confess for a 30-year tendency to cheat in the sense that I think the best value metric is a dividend discount model where you give them full credit for high stable returns and intellectual property. Our claim to fame in our first quant funds 
is that we owned Microsoft in our value stream in the top decile of value from the day it appeared as a stock that met our size limit until late 99, when it finally got overpriced enough that it drifted into decile two and was sliced month by month out of the portfolio so that by June of 2000, it had gone. It, of course, sold at many multiples of book, but it had a high stable return. And you need that kind of model. And we have that kind of approach. And we look at the Amazons or alphabets of the world. And what we find is that even allowing for those as best we can, they're still overpriced for the record. And the reason I recommend not going short is more that shorting is a desperately difficult game. You can never be certain that they don't, the fangs and the growth stocks, put in one last push that will shake you loose. You simply will not be able to take the pain as a short seller. Yeah, because you're waiting for the consensus to finally agree with you. Yes. And and who knows how long that'll take. That's right. If you have real confidence in a 10-year story, which I did in climate change and and anti-oil, and I do today in climate change and and emerging, and in a way, anti-fangs, but 10-year arguments are not enough to justify short sales. And the desert is <laughs> littered with the bones of people who have not learned that lesson. That's right. And we can, we can all learn from that experience. We've talked about the unique environment in which we live. And given today's actually very unique risks, unusual monetary fiscal policy at extremely high levels, uh, we have this rise of populism as the, as the wealth gap is growing. What's your best suggestion for investors in how to protect themselves given this wide range of potential outcomes? How should they think about investing just from a high level? Let me just start on the virus, if you'd let me. Sure. I have to confess to being the biggest statistical nerd that you will ever meet on this topic. And every morning when I wake up, I check all the data. (laughs) One of the many things it's brought home to me is what is the great strength of Homo sapiens that really singles us out. It's our ability to focus on optimistic thoughts and avoid unpleasant ones. It really is. It's what enables us to have South Sea bubbles, tech bubbles. It's what enables us to ignore the downside of climate change until it bites us increasingly. And it's evident in the virus. Now, the virus has a record-keeping mechanism. It's the number of people who die per million. People who are infected are a much woolier number, but deaths are pretty well recorded around the world. And what we find is there are three orders of magnitude on this grade system. It's as if it goes from A to Z rather than A to D. At the bottom end, where you have the best performers, you have Sri Lanka, Thailand, Taiwan, and Vietnam, and they have less than one person per million. Taiwan has seven people out of 26 million, seven people who died. They didn't have unfair advantages in timing. They live right next to China. They are a part of China, arguably, but they had people arriving. They had to deal with that. The cheating they did is the vice president of the country is an epidemiologist, can you believe? Uh, So um, that was not the least, perhaps, of their advantages. But all the Southeast Asian countries had enormous discipline in personal behavior, the willingness to wear masks and do what they're told and keep distance and so on. It was not a draconian China fashion. They did brilliantly. But Taiwan did 10 times better than China 
without uh, police everywhere. Uh, so you can take care of that. Japan, who, who also did very well, did very well not because the government was competent. In fact, most of them think it was incompetent, but because the individuals were prepared to carry the whole thing on their broad shoulders. They all wore masks. They all kept distance. They all respected each other and society and listened to the science that was involved. They were collectively brilliant and they have a very strong social contract compared to some of us. But 10 times worse than that, you have Japan is 10 times worse than Vietnam and Taiwan, Uruguay, Cuba, really a pretty, pretty good experience. 10 times worse than that. In round numbers, you have uh, Germany, uh, Denmark, and, and the global average, which is about 120 deaths per million. That's 120 compared to 0.3 of a person in Taiwan, but still a measure of competence. And then at the top end, you have Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey with an average of 1,500 per million. 1,500 against 120 or 125 average against 10 in Japan, against less than one in Sri Lanka and Taiwan, a thousand times plus. How is it possible? But more impressive than the numbers is the ability to avoid the numbers. Available every morning on the dot, Johns Hopkins. I have yet to meet a Massachusettian who realizes that our numbers are so bad that were we a separate country, we'd be the worst in the world, taking solace only in the other countries of New York and New Jersey. Quite remarkable. I've heard the mayor of Boston represent a pretty good effort, don't you think? I've heard the governor of Massachusetts get one step further than that and say flat out that we've done a pretty good job. A pretty good job, you're just worse than the other 200 countries on the planet. So that is a, a, an incredible testimonial to uh, the willingness to be manipulated into thinking that you're doing quite well, even by the liberal press. Why is that, one wonders. And, and once you've processed that, you realize how easy it is to believe nonsense about the stock market if we can't even get something as serious as the virus right. The election, of course, as I've said, offers a potential, I believe, for an increase in government spending and green spending, which might turn out on a 10-year uh, basis or so to be exactly what is needed to give a little electric shock to the rather dopey, developed world, rich world, which has been steadily slowing down to desperately low growth rates. Without that, we continue on the flight path we've been on. I think 1%, maybe one and a quarter is the kind of growth rate in GDP per capita that we're looking at for the next 20 years. And with it, we might break out and revert for a while, for a decade or two, as we gear ourselves to a green economy. So that would be very bullish long-term. In the short term, it might get people so nervous about debt, which doesn't worry me as much as other people, and we might see a decline in PEs. And the other thing is that government spending done correctly, very good for the economy, very good for workers, which in the US have not had a real increase per hour work since the mid-1970s, can you believe, where even dopey Europe has more than doubled and, and China and Vietnam has more than tentupled and so on. It is a bit of a pickle. Okay. So obviously there's tremendous uncertainty 
big forces at play. Going back to the original topic of what do investors do? So you're sitting there, you have a portfolio, and you're trying to achieve a reasonable return, and you have this wide range of potential outcomes. Where do you invest? Are you just looking for things that are cheap, or do you need hedges in place? Or what's your advice? My advice, really quite simple: you emphasize emerging markets, you de-emphasize the U.S. If you have to own the U.S., you go for deep value. I did not say that three years ago, five years ago, but. If I had to choose between doing that and avoiding the U.S. entirely, I would do the latter.、Uh, secondly, and what the Grantham Foundation does is, I would own where you can VC, and in our case, we can own early stage, and we are over 60 percent. We target 70 percent early stage VC, and of that, we target up to a half in the green variety,、uh, for not just for mission reasons, but because I think the top line opportunities. Will be way over average even in the VC universe for a long time. You've been producing these seven-year forecasts, asset class forecasts, for a couple decades, and I've looked at every one you've done. I think it's probably at least twenty years, and the current one is among the most depressing that I've seen, where expected returns are, in many cases, negative, real across the board, and there's a few pockets of, of value. It's quite depressing. You only need one big asset class, by the way, to get rich. Emerging markets, as I said, is way over half of the global GDP. It is growing far faster, and because of the size of China, it's guaranteed to do that. It's going to have a much better growth rate this year under stress, much better than the GDP growth of of the、uh, developed world. So, and it's got twenty six countries in, covers every industry you would want. Why would you be moaning and groaning when you have such a, a good opportunity? It's ten times earnings. It's cheap. It's a great opportunity. And if you insist on the U.S., buy venture capital, which is the last truly exceptional feature of American exceptionalism. By and large, in most of the things that matter to me, I have to make the sick joke that yes, America is exceptional. It's become exceptionally bad, and that we have the worst life expectancy. The Worst morbidities, the worst social measures of almost anything—children to sixteen-year-olds, number of people in prison, number of people who get shot—on and on and on. It's quite distressing. However, venture capital with the biggest, with the best, and where does the talent go these days? The really best and brightest don't go to Goldman Sachs. Sorry, Goldman Sachs, anymore, like they did in the financial bubble. They want to get into the VC business. To be mixing with things that really matter, and many of them to be actually starting their own enterprise, do something that is useful, exciting, and will make them rich as well. What a great opportunity! I warmly recommend that to any young person who wants to be where the action is and where the significance is. Who wants to do a useless job? And VC is the most useful of any job in finance. One of the byproducts of cutting rates to zero and Pushing asset prices up is leverage is extremely cheap, and if used wisely, can really boost returns. And I guess venture is a part of the way to play that. How do you think about leverage and being able to borrow at one percent or below, and investing in something in, in in terms of not fighting the Fed, not fighting Mother Nature? It seems like if you can do it without and survive the trough, that there's some upside potential there. Yeah, I mean, ironically, leverage plays the least role. In venture capital, most of them 
have relatively little leverage. It's equity money. It's kind of honest and straightforward, if you will. But why would you not take long-term cheap money if you can? Why would you not lock in a mortgage at 3%? Surely one expects to be able to do better than 3%, even in terms of your career earnings, you might expect uh, to grow them, or a lot of you anyway, at over 3%. And investing with a 3% target does not seem intimidating to me. The old rates of 15% maybe will never come back again, but 3% I think we can do. So why would you not take the leverage? And of course they do. And why would you be so worried about it? Let me just point out that debt is simply double entry bookkeeping. For every dollar of debt, there is someone who is owed a dollar. Why would I care if every other Japanese owns every other Japanese tons of money so that in total, the debt looks intimidating by historical standards? Yet from a US point of view, looking at internal debt, it's totally irrelevant and has proved to be, by the way. They have been moaning about Japanese debt levels for my entire career, and it has never had material consequences that I can see. They have plenty of things going wrong from time to time, but none of them have really come down to uh, leverage. Leverage does not intimidate me. What intimidates me is interest cost coverage. And if the rates are low, you can handle it. And when you look at interest rate coverage, you find that the entire corporate system is in pretty darn good shape, well above average. If you look at the aggregate sovereign standard by the US, if everything was owed at today's rates, we would be far, far better off than normal, normal of the last 50, 60 years anyway. So do not let conservative politicians and a few conservative economists persuade you that debt is a bone crusher. It simply is not. And even inflation is not that deadly. A moderate amount of inflation is completely compatible with a healthy economy, faster growth rates, and better treatment of the workers who have been sadly neglected in the US in particular. Speaking about inflation, we haven't seen significant inflation since you started GMO in the 1970s. And the Fed has vowed to avoid deflation at all costs and create inflation using all the tools at its disposal. Do you think they'll ultimately be successful? Because obviously they have a lot of tools to use, but when you look across the world, you look at Europe, you look at Japan, they have a lot of tools as well, and they've been trying for a long time without success. Where do you see this ending? We have been gently sliding into deflation as a global economy a couple of decades or longer. So I am actually very proud to say that I wrote quarterly letters for 20 years, and I never featured inflation as a major risk. That, I've checked that. It's absolutely true. It wasn't a major risk. It hasn't been a major risk. And as far as I'm concerned, it isn't a major risk. However, at least now for the first time since 82, when the long bond peaked out at 16%, can you believe? At least for the first time, we can now sit down over coffee in the old days, put our feet up and have a conversation about the potential for inflation to come back. If you have a setback to the real economy, both supply and demand, as we've had from COVID, and you're throwing money at it to stimulate it, and you're throwing government works at it to stimulate it, you can reasonably talk about the possibility of inflation finally coming back into the equation. What we should expect maybe is that, particularly in raw materials, that one here and one there, food will become scarce, and then they'll address that and it will pop up in other places 
and so on. But to work through to wages where inflation really starts to escalate, it's going to take a long time because we've had such miserable deflation in the typical average wage for so long that we are not in immediate danger of having them spiral out of control. Also, the power of unions have been eaten away by the force of circumstances and the force of right-wing politics deliberately for uh, 50, 60, 70 years also. That makes inflation much less likely than in, in the 70s. It's fairly remarkable when you look back and you zoom out a little bit and you look at interest rates near zero for over a decade, trillions of dollars of printing and inflation rates are falling across the world. It shows you how significant the deflationary forces are in the backdrop. It also says to me, and I know I'm saying this now for the third time, (laughs) is that the difference between monetary that that you're describing and fiscal government spending program, which we really have not tried much in the last 20 years. We've been very nervous, particularly since the housing bust. And we have to get over that. Otherwise, we will revert to the slow, steady unraveling period. And I fear that. Much better to push too hard on government spending than too little, which we have done here and there, particularly in Europe in the last 10 years. We've really missed a great opportunity. So uh, bring on the left-wing Democrats. Let's have some real government spending. And let's make sure for once that it's spun towards greening the economy and economic investments that will pay off for decades to come. I don't mind a bit of inflation. It doesn't threaten the economy. What it does is it threatens PEs. And that's something that you have to be aware of. Ben Inker and I wrote a model, designed a model 16 years ago to explain PEs. And it's factor number one, actually it's almost co-equal, is inflation and profit margins. Anything that makes the market feel comfortable is associated coincidentally, incidentally, not not predictively, but coincidentally. If you're comfortable, the PEs are high. If you're uncomfortable today, the PEs are low. And inflation makes you uncomfortable. High profit margins make you comfortable. The market today sits just about on the uh, explanatory line. That is not a prediction, however. That's an explanation. The, The prediction would be, are the profit margins likely to get whacked? on a global basis, on a US basis? Is society likely to turn against the fangs and the social apps and so on? What is the potential to regress back towards more normal profit margins? And what is the potential for the virus to have a second round attack and bring down the profit margin? So the market is very vulnerable to profit margins, very vulnerable to the even the hint of inflation. But in terms of the reality, the economy is very, very durable in the face of anything up to intermediate inflation levels, three, four, five percent, it won't affect the economy, but it will knock down price earnings ratios. So file that away in your brain and stay tuned. Sounds good. Well, the Fed is certainly trying to achieve that. Jeremy, thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom with us. I always learn something new when I listen to you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. 